Hello, everyone, and welcome to Binder Talkback, a podcast brought to you by the Brussels Binder. My name is Emma Rainey, and I am joined by my fellow BBR, Scarlett Varga. Hi, everyone. It's been some time since you've uh, heard from us, uh, but we promise we've been very busy uh, in the last few months. Uh, we have a number of launches, and we had during the summer which uh, we are very excited to share with you. I think, Emma, you, you will do that for us. Yes, I will. So just over a month ago, the Brussels Bender Beyond project launched a series of six toolkits. Each of them provides practical solutions and raises awareness on the need to improve gender equality and diversity in policy discussions and media. The toolkits were created in a 12-month collaborative process among 40 members of the Brussels Bender Beyond Network, each coming from different sectors, backgrounds, regions, sharing their knowledge and experience. Each of the toolkits focuses on a different stakeholder or perspective, ranging from how to increase diversity at events by going beyond gender and how journalists can be more inclusive in media. There is also a, tool, a toolkit for improving gender balance at conferences, a two further toolkits for women experts to not only learn about strategic networking, but to also gain the confidence in stepping forward and being visible in public debate. Last, but certainly not in the least, we have a toolkit for men, yes, men, mm-hmm. and how to be a male ally to promote women's voices, which is the theme of this episode. Amazing. Thanks, Emma. Um, And on this note, um, let me welcome our guest today. Um, I'm I'm really pleased to have uh, with us today Enrique Medizabal. He is an independent researcher and advisor on think tanks and policy research networks. Um, Hi, Enrique. Welcome on our podcast. Um, Hi. Hi, Scarlett. And hi, Emma. Very nice to uh, be here with you. Nice to have you on. So let me uh, say a few words about you, um, and then I give you the word to say a few words about yourself. So um, I think what Eric is most known about is his work on on think tanks. Uh, So back in 2010, he founded the blog on think tanks, which has now become one of the leading sources on information and opinion related to think tanks. We are all using it. Um, I can tell you that in Bruegel, we we refer to it uh, regularly. Um, and Enrique is also Global Fellowship Counselor at RSA. So Enrique, welcome again. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and uh, maybe especially the work that you do? Yes, thank you. Um, so something that is different to what you said, um, Scarlett, I'm Peruvian. I'm, we're having this conversation. I'm based here in Lima in Peru. Um, I trained as an economist and then I did a postgraduate degree on social policy, but I worked most of my life, a professional life, I worked in think tanks, both in Peru and in the UK. And it was in the UK working at the Overseas Development Institute uh, for about six years where I started to study think tanks. I was working in a program called RAPID. Uh, it was called Research and Policy in Development. It does, it does no longer exist. But the program focused on studying the relationship between research and policy. And wherever we looked, you know, whether it was in Latin America or Africa or Asia, we found that there were these policy research organizations that play an important role. I won't say that it was a crucial role. I don't, I won't say that they were the most influential player in any of these contexts, but there was an important role in connecting, you know, the, the generation, uh, the dissemination communication of research and its use. And so I started looking at think tanks and as you said, in 2010, 
set up on think tanks as a blog and uh, and that's developed into something which is now akin to a global organization small but with a, with a global reach yeah i mean from from our perspective it doesn't seem small definitely it's it's just the network makes it i think so um so diverse and so big uh, all in all and maybe if I may drive our discussion in that direction indeed, because as you know, um, Emma and I uh, have uh, diversity in think tanks very close to our hearts. And this is why, you know, this is what the Brussels binder is doing. It's trying to give a tool to, to present solutions in this direction. Um, and I wanted to pick up on your, first and foremost, on your winter school, because um, I was very lucky to be part of it. And I have been following your work, uh, yours and your team's work on the winter school. And I found that this year it really uh, welcomed a very diverse group of professionals, both from geographic and, uh, and gender perspective. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about how this is insured when you plan for it. So what are the internal decisions that you need to make uh, and what are the best practices that you would advise others to, to follow? So the winter school you referred to is now called the School for Think Tankers, and then we'll add a, a location at the end of it. Um, the winter school took place in Geneva, um, for the first four years, I believe. And then this time around, of course, for obvious reasons, we couldn't do it in a city, but we did it uh, online. Um, and we hope that next year we'll be, we'll be back in, uh, in a physical location, but we will also keep the online version. The online version has allowed us to reach you know, many more people, people that would not have been able to, to you know, pay for a travel to a city, whether it's Geneva or somewhere else, and you know, accommodation. So it's made it a, li a little bit more open, more accessible to more people. So we want to keep that, um, that option. Uh, but you know, we all miss the face-to-face -face, um, um, sort of camaraderie that, that takes place in these, uh, in these events. Uh, we do try to, you know, we, we make an effort to ensure that there is a balance, um, not just a gender balance, but also um, geographical balance, mm -hmm. um, sort of disciplinary balance of the participants, and also a balance in the roles that they play. So, you know, it's not just researchers who come to the school, it's actually some researchers, but also, um, or, or more in fact, people working in communications, in operations, in management of, of the organization. Now, I'd like to say to you that this is a perfect plan and a formula, but in fact, over the first few years, we've been trying to build a, a demand for the school. And so um, we've been making decisions on a rolling basis. And as we make a decision, we reflect on whether the person we are, you know, we are accepting to the school uh, will help us, you know, reach that balance or not. I think the key thing is that we just have this in mind, right? This is mm -hmm. not a thing we pay attention to at the end when we've you know we've got all the participants in the school uh, 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 you know signed up and then we and then we look and say you know do we have the right balance i think we're asking ourselves as we go you know are we going to strike the right balance of all these dimensions that i that i mentioned before right? and i think that's that's the key thing it's not rocket science i think um, it's just having this in mind when you're when you're doing the work whatever work that is yeah, indeed, the inception phase, I guess that's the important part. Yeah, so I just want to take you down in a slightly different direction because when I was researching your profile and like your work, 
I've seen that you are really into data. <laughs> so um, last year, I read the book Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez, and it was a bit of an eye opener for me in terms of contextualizing just how the world is, is designed from the male default. In feminist spaces, we often discuss the need for more data to help pinpoint inequalities often felt by women and experienced by women. Can you share with us from your perspective why cross-cutting gender analysis and research can be beneficial for think tanks? And maybe even going one step further in maybe explaining why partnering up with NGOs and grassroots can also help think tank research? Um, let me let me go one at a time because I think those those two are <laughs> somewhat different questions. Uh, can I let me take a step back uh, just before? So, um, what one I, I have to, I have to admit that I am a sort of, a, sort of late convert or or a late ally in this uh, in this course, um, and I I think I was you know I won't say blind but I was uh, unaware right? unaware and I, I could sort of also uninterested about this issue for a long time, working in think tanks. I didn't pay attention to these things. You know, I probably used a language that I shouldn't have used. I, um, I did not pay attention to, you know, who was in the team, whether it was a balanced team or not, or we were looking at, we had a gender lens of an analysis. I didn't, I didn't think about it. I, you know, I look back at some of the research I did and I think we did have a gender lens, but it was not because of something that I, you know, consciously did or recommended. It's just that that's how the project developed. And two things happened um, that I think were important. I, I think it refers to your point Emma, on, on data. Um, the first one is that I, be, I became a union rep for uh, at ODI. So um, a colleague of mine was leaving and said, you know, you should be union rep. Said, okay, I'll give it a go. Some like something that it would be fun to um, to um, to do. What happened as union rep is that I I started to notice uh, what was going on behind what you know everybody saw in the organization right so there were struggles that individuals were going through and those struggles um, you know were not you know, were not sort of general right they were unique to the to the to the situations of each each individual and it was quite clear that there were issues of gender that you know were were part of those struggles and I had just not been aware of them so that's one thing that made me become more of an ally. Another thing, which is a bit more anecdotal, is that I noticed on a, on a study trip or a, or a research trip to, um, I can't remember what it was, maybe West Africa. I noticed that some of my colleagues, my female colleagues were wearing uh, wedding rings or engagement rings. And they were clearly not, not married. I knew that and, and did not know they were engaged. And I asked them about it. And they said it was a, it was a way of uh, protecting themselves from unwanted uh, attention. And all of these things had been, I think, clearly unaware of this. So I don't know if this is the data that you referred to, but for me, this was information, right? It was information that I had not paid attention to before. And so I started to pay a little bit more attention to our, you know, the relationships, you know, in the organization, to our work, to, to how we behave. And I started to notice these things that they were pretty obvious for the women around me, you know, at work, but had not been obvious, um, obvious to me. And I think that's the point about uh, cross-cutting gender analysis in think tank research, right? Um, if you're blind to gender and any other dimension of analysis, then we cannot be relevant to, to that, right? And crudely speaking, in the case of gender, uh, this translates into policy recommendations that fail to address the challenges that, you know, more than half the population faces, the majority of the population 
interfaces. Right? So I think that's, to me, it's almost an obvious reason why you need to incorporate uh, cross-cutting gender analysis rather than having gender as a separate thing. Um, I don't know if that that addresses that that first question, but I think I think information data and present it in a way that connects to the to the people you're communicating it to. In this case, as I said, I was part of the, I was a union rep, so the information that came to me was relevant to the role I had assumed, and also this sort of this surprise about the use of uh, of uh, wedding rings. Um, it just stuck with me. It was just such a mm -hmm. I, such an eye opener. It sounds silly, but to me at the time, it was so. Uh, almost a little bit shameful about not having noticed that for you know four or five years of working with with you know these colleagues and friends um i just not paid attention to that mm. actually Kiki, as you were speaking i was thinking that there is definitely a dif sometimes a difference in what you know data can bring to you as not just in gender research but in in general we have seen what happened with brexit and what's happening with different policy decisions out there so what data really means for people and then what information and then experience mean, means for people. And I think what you highlighted here is also your experience, which, you know, which I'm happy to hear about because it, it seems to make the world more equal just by interaction, just by, you know, the right people interacting and on, honestly speaking to each other and showing each other what the limitations are. And maybe just one point to add from, from a woman's perspective. Um, myself as well, growing up in, in, in Eastern Europe, um, I must admit this was never really a topic growing up, uh, whether, you know, you, do you feel uh, disadvantaged? Do you feel that you have, you know, you're treated uh, as a woman? Is the patriarchal system really pushing you down? And it's really not something that is very obvious to you. Um, and in the past, you know, I think it was clear, like when we were fighting for women's voting rights, it was clear what we we're fighting for. It was just there in front of our eyes. And today, sometimes the biases that we feel that we that we face are somewhat hidden, and that's I think the challenge of our generation or or, or, or us as we are here in the call and in a, in our everyday work to understand where those biases are and how we can work on them together um, as allies, you know, men and women together. So um, I just want to bring you back to the second part of my really big question, <laughs> and that was basically about like partnering or up with um, NGOs and grassroots organizations, how could that enrich um, research for think tanks? Yes, I think um, I, I'll start with saying this. I think think tanks have a problem with power. They, they love it. Um, and I think right from the beginning, the story of think tanks, uh, I think think tanks are all about, are all about access. Um, you know, they, that's what they look for. They look for access to key uh, decision makers. And that's what they sell to some extent. You know, when they, when they uh, go out looking for funders, what they're saying to these funders, these supporters is, I have access. And, you know, you can get some of that access if you come to my events, um, if you participate in my, in my sort of, uh, breakfast sessions, uh, if your name's you know, presented in, in some sort of... Uh, funders wall or in our website, you know, you belong to a group that has access. Uh, and they tend to look up uh, when they look for audiences. Uh, they seek out high level connections. Um, and this is partly because this is how change has happened in the past. You know, decisions made at the top that then are kind of imposed or trickle down to, towards everybody else. But I think that times are certainly changing. And, you know, individuals, grassroots, NGOs, um, they have much greater say today on issues 
that were you know hitherto reserved to experts, right? And we've seen this, you know, we've seen this throughout last year. Not just, and not, and I am not just talking about sort of the conspiracy theorists. You know, I'm talking about individuals that, you know, with a you know strong command of data analysis, you know, have become uh, key thought leaders in their countries and communities. You know, without having to be members of a, of an academic institution or a think tank. Uh, the media has turned to them. They're just better communicators. They're better at telling a story with data. They're better at communicating with the general public, um, etc. So I think um, failing to engage with these other actors uh, is going to make them less relevant uh, over time in the future. Um, uh, I think it, it used to be that they looked for a testimony from a policymaker to show that they were influential. Um, but I think now they probably crave some recognition from social movements, right? I think, I think uh, increasingly you'll see think tanks um, looking for the kind of the, the arguments presented by the general public uh, towards change and see if they can recognize their own research and their own analysis in those, in those arguments. That's really interesting. I, I think, right, I, I'm a bit of an outsider in the think tank world, <laughs> in Brussels think tanks at least, but I've somewhat been involved, like, because uh, my background mainly is from a grassroots NGO um, side of things, especially from a gender perspective. So coming into think tanks, um, it was a bit, it was, it was a culture shock in a lot of ways. And um, I did feel somewhat like an, of an outsider looking in. Um, but I do, it's something that I often um, feel quite frustrated about is the lack of um, wanting to even include maybe even feminist analysis in a lot of like uh, of think tanks work. So like there is loads of great analysis on like feminist foreign policy and feminist economics. And I just don't understand why you wouldn't want to include that dimension into the work because it makes it more real, like in the sense of like, it's more impactful, it's more in tune with how people experience like their lives. Because um, it's it's getting more down to like the beneficiaries of who is the, the data meant to be about. Yes, I mean I think this reflects, but this reflects uh, the the origin and the development of the think tank. So if you look at, I mean, there are different types. Diane Stone talks about um, families or traditions of think tanks. I like to add uh, waves of think tanks, waves of think tank formation. So if you if you look at any country, you'll see that there are some think tanks that are more academic in nature. Others are more advocacy in nature, more overtly uh, partisan or political. Um, others are more grassrooty. You know, they're more about uh, doing the work. So um, you know, they combine a bit of research with a lot of practice, and then they use that practice to to finalize their work. But they've engaged with the public quite quite a bit. Um, and then it just depends on when these think tanks were formed. Right? If they were formed fifty years ago. Probably much more academic than if they were formed in the last few years, which they'll, they'll be much more activist in nature. Um, and this will won't this won't coincide across the world. It'll it'll depend on the, uh, the, the 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 moment in the political history of a particular country. Um, so you know you might uh, you might be working in a think tank where the people in the think tank have an idea of what a think tank should look like, should be, and that's why they work there, that's why they seek to work there, and they reinforce the, you know, the ideal notion of the think tank that probably does not look kind towards these you know, approaches, does not think or does not appreciate that 
grassroots organizations, you know, the general public is or should be an audience for them, right? They're, they come with an inertia, with, a, with an expectation. This relates to this, this issue of the ideal think tank and the ideal think tanker that, you know, that is clearly a man, right? It's a youngish uh, entrepreneur uh, willing to do whatever it takes to communicate to the policymaker, you know, wake up at 5 a.m. in the morning to be on a radio show, um, you know, go to any cocktails I need to be, you know, you have to go to travel if you have to, if you work in international development think tank, then, you know, you know, you have to be willing to travel and go to mm-hmm. World Bank meetings and other conferences and stay up late, you know, and network at the, uh, at the bar and afterwards and the restaurant afterwards. So, you know, the, the, if you work in a think tank that, that, that has idealized itself that way, then you'll find it very hard to incorporate some of these new ideas and new, new relationships. But it might be that there are other think tanks on, you know, I, I know many of them, that in their origin, they are um, they come from the field of advocacy, from civil society, from grassroots, and so they attract other kinds of people to that organization, and so they'll be much more likely to welcome these um, new research methods, these disciplines, these these suggestions of new new partnerships and new relationships, new audiences. Right? So it, it, I think I think we have to be we have to be careful about not thinking that all think tanks are the same because they're certainly not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we, here at Bruegel, we are trying to, um, I, I, I would have to use the word mainstream agenda research into our research, and we are we are trying to do it more and more, but there is definitely um, a very slow pace in doing that, and also somewhat reticence, because people also want to know what they're talking about. They don't just want to get involved in a certain topic just to, you know, whitewash a bit the topic or themselves through the topic. Um, so I think that there needs to be also a certain kind of time, a period that of transformation when, you know, uh, capacity is also built up. And, and this kind of drives me to, to maybe a next question when it comes to um, call it staffing or capacity, internal capacity in think tanks. Um, because it is often said that the vast majority of women in think tanks can be found in the middle management. And, the, and often concentrated in positions like development, uh, communication, or even human resources. So I was wondering whether you agree with this, sent, with this statement and what, there's no right or wrong answer, right? But what do you consider to be the major barrier to entry for women who want to work um, in very high senior positions or leadership positions in think tanks? I, I, I think you're correct. I think uh, if we look at the data we have on the in the open think tank directory, um, you can download it and play with that mm-hmm. data as much as you can. Um, there's a tiny minority of think tanks that we have data for around the world um, have uh, female leaders. And this includes both board members as well as um, executive directors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we also have data on, on the gender of the founder of the organization. Again, you know, minor, a minority for sure. Um, your sister organization in Peru, Grupo Sofia, did some research on women in academia, especially in social sciences, and they found something that is very typical to think tanks and other organizations. There, there are many women in sort of entry-level positions, young researchers, um, you know, up to say middle, like you said, mid, mid-level of the organization. There are going to be a lot of women in, a, in positions related to human resources, operations, um, communications, for sure. There's, there's no lack of female communication directors. 
um, is when you go higher up that you find um, find fewer women um, um, in those in those positions. So not a barrier of entry to the organization, although I think a, a, a bigger barrier of entry to the organization, to think tanks, I would argue, has to do with um, economic class or privilege. Right? So I think, I think think tanks are, by and large, organizations that are middle upper, upper class. Uh, they, um, you know, it's, it's expensive to begin to work in a think tank. They don't tend to pay well. And so if you are from a working class background, if you've got to work, you know, to survive, you know, after uni, then, you know, think tanks are difficult to get, get into. Right? So not, not so much of a gender thing, but I think more of an economic issue. But, but once you're in the organization, um, progressing up, it's hard. And Simon, Simon Maxwell talks about, you know, the job of think tank director. He says this is one of the best jobs in the world, but it's also an impossible job. Um, and I agree. I mean, it's, just, it's a very difficult job to be a think tank, think tank director. You have, um, you have to manage a, you know, an organization that I was characterized it this way. Basically what you're doing, you're giving your, your outputs for free. Are you telling everybody, this is what we know, take it, use it. I'm not gonna charge you. And then you're trying to find someone to pay for what you just did, right? A consultancy doesn't do that. A consultancy says, I've got information, I'll give it to you if you pay for it. Um, the think tank business model is sort of insane. And so you've got to bring in the best people you can find, but you can't pay them that well. You've got to motivate that staff. You've got to bring in money constantly. You've got to manage, you know, balance your books, you know, in, always in a, in a crisis. You've got to communicate with multiple audiences. You're competing with, you know, increasing number of um, actors and organizations and individuals who have more resources than you have to communicate and to be on the agenda. So it's a very difficult job. And the sad thing is that most think tanks, because the majority of think tanks are small organizations, do not have the organizational capacity to support those positions. And so you end up having directors who do a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. And so these are 24 hour jobs. And I mean, let's, you know, let's be crude. Unfortunately, um, you know, if, if there is someone who's going to have 24 hours a day uh, to work, um, it's more likely to be a man that doesn't have other responsibilities at home. So I think that's, you know, I think it's, that's what happens, not just in the world of think tanks, but in, in other sectors as well. But I would say that the business model of think tanks, right, the constant look, uh, you know, looking for funding, the, um, the need to always be on the agenda, uh, I think that prevents um, and sort of stops many women from being able to climb up the ladder. There's another issue, of course, that there aren't that many you know, women at the top of think tanks. And therefore that role model, that sort of career path that you can try to emulate to follow is hard to find. It's not, it's not there for you to um, uh, just copy or try to, uh, or be inspired by. Um, so those are at least two reasons why I think there are there are these uh, these difficulties. What was interesting there was when you were talking about you know how they're juggling so much and like the priorities are often elsewhere. Um, one of the things that I often find quite frustrating is um, the lack of prioritization in regards to like diversity, equity, and inclusion sort of strategies and think tanks. It often comes across as like a, a one-off sort of tokenist, uh, tokenistic sort of gesture. I was just wondering if you could share any insight on that from your own perspective. Uh, yeah, but yes, I, I won't, I won't generalize again. I don't, 
I don't think that is true for everybody, but I can I can think of many cases where that has has been the has been the case. Um, I, I would reflect that for most, I think for for a lot of for a lot of people, especially people in high level positions in think tanks, so pe people in leadership, what you'll find is they are senior researchers, you know, men and women that have you know have kind of gone through the ranks. Um, they haven't had to think about these issues for a long time. They've probably spent a lot of time thinking about learning how to run these organizations. Um, and so, so these questions, these new demands on them, you know, are not, are not things that are necessarily well prepared for. So the kind of manuals and toolkits and advice you guys are providing, I think are useful in the sense that might give them a way forward, might give them, a, you know, um, an opportunity to uh, know what next, you know, what to do next. Um, and so in my experience, it's not that they don't want to do anything about it. It's just that they, they just don't know what to do. And they've got so many other things to worry about, including the fact that the organization, you know, might go under if they don't win a big project every year. Um, and so, you know, they choose to prioritize that rather than, you know, any meaningful or significant reforms. I would also say that, I, unfortunately, I think to, 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 to make sure these are meaningful and significant, in some cases, these might be rather expensive um, reforms. So for example, you know, there's a, it's a very typical business model in many organizations around the world. Um, we, we have it ourselves at, at OTT. And is that you, know, you don't necessarily have staff. What you have is associates, people who you know, work for the think tank, but on a project by project basis. This, this makes the think tank very resilient to, to crises, right? There's no money this year because of the pandemic, that's fine, right? We don't have to pay uh, salaries of a extended or large, large workforce. Uh, it works fine when you're a young researcher and you don't wanna to commit to a particular organization, you wanna be flexible, um, you might actually make a lot of money by working on two or three projects at the same time. So it's, it's, you know, it's something that young researchers are kind of like. It might work fine as well if you are much older. Um, you don't want to spend you know, every single day working in a, in a single organization. You might have other kinds of affiliations. But those in the middle, especially women, will struggle because they are, they are probably the ones who have to take time off um, if you know, they want to start a family. And the think tank won't provide maternity leave. Um, if a family member is sick and they have to take care of them, which is more likely to be them rather than the men, again, the think tank is not going to provide any in protect, social protection because they're not employed by the organization. Right? So that same think tank is you know, telling their funders, look, we're very resilient. Uh, and you know, everybody's congratulating the think tank for their resilient think, uh, business model. Uh, but its all business model is not going to help um, young women go from junior researchers to senior researchers. You're going to lose them at that middle. So a reform is necessary, but you know that reform is going to be expensive. Um, so again, not maybe some of them. Some of the leaders do not know what steps to take next, and some of them realize that those steps are actually quite expensive to take, and they just can't do them on their own. Perfect. Uh, thank you for sharing that. So I have one last question for you, and this is a bit of like a more of a relaxed, easy, fun question. So, <laughs> but um, it's a bit of a curveball at the same time. What woman leader inspires you? 
What women leader inspires me? I, I would struggle with you asking me about what, what male um, leader inspires me <laughs> as well. Um, I, I, I find that that is, that is on me, that's sort of on my, my personality. Um, I, I would say that there are individuals that rather than inspire me, I, I do ask myself every once in a while, you know, what would she say? Or what would he say? Um, um, and depends on the issues that I am that I am that I am working with, um, and for no particular reason uh, whatsoever. So in terms of in terms of when it comes to work, work related things, you know, there are people like uh, Prianti Fernando, who used to run SEPA in Sri Lanka. Um, when I was at, at ODI, Prianti was always a partner of uh, of the Rapid Program, and. She had a very testy relationship with uh, my boss and OTT's director. Very respectful, but it was very, you know, she was always ready for the fight. Um, <laughs> at the beginning, of course, I saw her, I, I, admit, I saw her as, oh, once, uh, there she goes again. Right? Just, um, we were about to finish this discussion and now we have to deal with that issue that she's just raised. But I was much younger then. Um, and. Um, and I do think that she is someone who I would, I think, I often think, you know, would she, you know, would she approve of this comment? Would she approve of this um, strategy, this approach? She was in our advisory board for a while uh, at, at, on think tanks. And the reason why I put her there was because I knew that if I, if I did something or I said something that I, I did not, I was not aware was, you know, was probably incorrect or was not appropriate, uh, she'd be someone to call me up for it. She'll be someone to let me know. Look, I think this is wrong. I think you should do it this way, this other way. And I, I always respected that. You know, she was never afraid to raise that issue. And, and I've, I have sort of tried to play that similar role in my own professional life. Um, the other side of the world, someone like um, Ruth Levine, um, with whom I, when I, when she was at the uh, Hewlett Foundation, I have sort of a professional relationship. Is also on our, on our advisory board, and uh, and every once in a while, I've you know I get a chance to talk to her, and and someone with you know, with sort of experience in the field is able to reflect on her work, and and, and it's someone that I respect in the sense that even if we do not agree with everything that you know we both think it's the right way forward, um, she is someone who will kind of listen in, you know, and and then share what she is thinking about on any particular issue. And I think that's also something quite important, being able to just tell everybody. And she has this email that she sends every week to everybody that, you know, either work for her, with her, or, you know, just has to be added to her list. And she said, tells people, this is what I'm thinking about. And I think that's also a critical thing. It's not, it's not to keep it to yourself, but it's just let people know, this is what I'm thinking about. This is what I'm reading about. This is what I this is what I like, this is what I dislike. Um, I think it makes it much easier for the rest of us to engage, engage with them. So they, they might be two, two women that are in my, in my current radar that I would say, um, I, I don't know if they inspire me, but they, they certainly uh, have been an inspiration. Um, <laughs> in, in my I, I guess if I may come in, I, I pass the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the test door is that, is that 
<laughs> no, but I guess what I was also thinking while you were speaking, I think, I guess what I appreciate in this reply is that you mentioned um, women experts and person, uh, personalities that are in your immediate circle and, you know, that you got something from um, in practice, some something that, that we, you know, that one shares with the other, that one can learn from the other, because often people tend to reply to this question saying, you know, um, I don't know, Michelle Obama or something, which is, there's no, there's no wrong, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, but, but sometimes we are just, you know, um, looking maybe for the, the, the role models in the wrong places when we sometimes have so many around us, we would just need to open our eyes and appreciate, um, the complex characters that we, that we have just in our, uh, in, in our own circles. I think I think you're right, and I think as a, I don't know if this is a conclusion to this conversation, but um, um, I think that when we discuss about when we discuss making women in think tanks more visible, I think we have to we have to make them more visible sometimes even to, to their immediate uh, communities, right, to mm -hmm. their immediate space. Um, it's not just about making sure that we're more women on the, you know, the media, but I, I think that often you find that there are women in your in your organization or in your in your city or in your sector that you're just not reading about, right? You're not, um, you know, you know, you don't learn more about them because you didn't go to that university where she teaches, or you didn't, you haven't been to those events when she's had a chance to present a paper, um, and so those role models might be closer to. Um, um, to you. Also, another point. I was, I was, I was going to mention someone else. I was going to say that someone that I often talk to and discuss and use as a, as a sounding board and professional issues um, is Norma Correa, who is mm. a member of Grupo Sofia in Peru, and she's also on our, on our advisory board. Um, and Norma is younger than me, right? I think, uh, I think we often think of role models, you know, and we can look up in terms mm -hmm. of age, right, uh, or experience. Um, and, and, and I do think, and I, I have come across people that look, look sideways to her in a way that I kind of, they, they look at her and think, okay, so how, how is she, how is she managing her career? Uh, is there something I can learn from her? Right. And, and she said the same thing about looking at how other people have managed their career and learning, learning from, from them. So maybe that inspiration or emulation, um, doesn't have to happen as you say, Scarlet from people you don't know. They it, it can happen people are closer to you, but also it doesn't have to be people who have sort of had a had a longer experience than you, but um, maybe they have a similar experience to you and they've yeah, right, um, right. figured some things out that you haven't, and, and maybe you figure things out that they haven't. So that was really fantastic and completely agree. Let's uh, promote the women actually around us as well. So on that note, thank you so much for joining us, Enrique. It's uh, great to hear about the work that you're doing in Think Tech community and also just for being a really great advocate and ally. Um, do you have anything that you would like to plug in? Um, well, we, we have our annual review coming up soon. Um, it'll come out in early April to coincide with our annual conference, which will take place in late April. So I invite people to join on think tanks uh, sign up to the newsletter and you'll get information about both uh, events the this year the annual review and the annual conference will deal with the issue of think tanks and change uh, and one of the issues that we will definitely address is the issue of um, women in think tanks and um, and whether this is changing the, the leadership in think tanks and the business models that many think tanks pursue 
Great, thank you. Also, thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'll be back soon with more updates from the Brussels Binder and Brussels Binder Beyond project. If you haven't done so already, go check out the new BB Beyond toolkits at www.toolbox.brusselsbinder.org. And in the meantime, say no to manals and promote a woman's voice today. <laughs>